I was afraid this lesson might be a bit depressing. I was hopeful that it wasn't going to come across that way. But the way that these men have prepared our minds already, I'm so thankful that that is not what this lesson's meant to be. Peter says that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that means that there are things in this life that are difficult, and we've been given difficult texts to help deal with difficult times. This text in Ecclesiastes 7 is a strange sort of text for us, for the way we think. But Solomon is talking about reality. He's talking about things that we are going to face in this life, and if we're not prepared to think about them in real ways, we are going to be steamrolled. We're going to be bowled over. But if we think about them from the right perspective, as Jason pointed out several times, is the word I would use that is perfect for this, with the perspective of hope that comes through the suffering, and hope that is there beyond the suffering, and hope that will be an eternal hope while the suffering is temporary, then it changes how we look at the difficulties this life brings on. I was thinking about this text a while back because my birthday is coming up, and my real birthday comes up shortly after that. My birthday in Christ comes up in the same month as my, as my physical birthday, and that's the birthday that I consider. And sometimes I've thought of it even as a death day. <laughs> Several years ago, I mentioned to the congregation where I was that a young man I'd been studying with had died. And they gasped, and I attended for them too. I paused a bit, and then I said, but thanks be to God, he was raised again to a new life. He had submitted to Christ and died to his old self and came to a new life, a new understanding under this king that we were talking about in our class earlier. I intended for that to have the effect it did because I don't think we think about that enough. I was scolded a bit later for having done it for so long, the pause after that. I think there may have, I've played it a little too long. But we need to be thinking about death from the garden, the joy of the garden. As God revealed his will to Adam and Eve, he said, but if you eat of this one tree, death will be the result. It's a reality that God wants us to be aware of, that there is suffering and there is death in this world. So as we look at this text that seems so strange, that grief is better than joy, that being among those who mourn is better than being among those who feast, there is a perspective that's involved here. It doesn't mean just live being depressed. I know a lot of Christians, and I know a lot of joyous people, and I know a lot of people that are experiencing joy in the midst of immense suffering. And if you're not there yet, I want to encourage you to be there. I know a lot of Christians who are suffering. I know a lot of Christians who are struggling, and struggling to make sense of why they're struggling why they're struggling physically, why they're struggling emotionally, why they're struggling spiritually. But I want us to sort of look at this text together and consider a few of these things that we've been singing about already. Thank you, David, for, for helping us to have our minds in that perspective. And certainly, thank you, Jason, for, for sharing that. Thankful to Christ for making this perspective possible as we look at this text. So let's consider Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. That's a hard thing to think about. I believe what we're looking at are things that are permanent or lasting versus things that are temporary. The celebration of birth is wonderful and beautiful, but it's temporary because it doesn't take long for this child who's come into the world to begin to experience difficulties and for his parents to experience difficulties. In some cases, the mother may die during childbirth, and the difficulty begins for the family right there. 
Unfortunately, in the world we live in, that's not as much a reality, at least in our part of the world, it's not as much a reality, but that was a reality for them. And so the joy of birth is temporary. But that day of death is coming, and it's, it's a permanency in a sense. And we'll, we'll look at the, at the aspect in which it's permanent. And a good name is meant to be permanent. When you think about birthdays versus perhaps death days, We'll think about some memorials of deaths in a little bit. I read a poem years ago in college where a man was talking about his father having passed on, and he was imagining his father being younger and the day of the anniversary of his death coming. (laughs) We think about the anniversary of the day we were born, but we don't recognize, we don't think about Hebrews 9.27. There's a day appointed for us to die, and it's going to happen on some date on the calendar. And we pass that date every year until we get there. And that's what this poet was bringing up, that the anniversary of this man's death had been there every year, and he had gone through doing various things on that day without realizing that was going to be the date on which he would be called uh, to, to die. And so I would ask you to have a perspective on that. Think about the fact that it's appointed that we're going to die, and after that, the judgment. That'll be the point that Ecclesiastes will get to. <laughs> After that day of death, there's a judgment. So we need to be conscious of that day of death. We like to push that out of our minds as far as possible. And even in struggles, we need to be conscious there is a day of death coming. And so there is something temporary that is sort of the joy of remembering birthdays, but there's something that's always out there, the permanency of thinking about death. So birthdays are a celebration of living. And when you're younger, a celebration of maturing. We don't celebrate the maturing aspect so much once we get to a certain maturity. But as children, we're like, oh, you know, you, can, you moved on from one hand onto two now. <laughs> Or now you're on the hands and feet, or we probably don't do that after they get to be 10. But we are maturing. You're getting toward driving age or voting age, or you're going to be going off on, on your own. And we, think, we celebrate these, these milestones in a positive, happy way. But again, they're passing milestones, and they're, they're left behind in the rearview mirror. And there's that day of death is always there every year. Typified by feast and, and mirth are these days that we remember, these birthdays. And he talks about that in in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2 and verse 4, these, these parties, the house of mourning versus the house of feasting. And we think of the house of feasting. We like that. And it's good. We ought to like that. But precious ointment loses its fragrance all too soon. <laughs> and we're aware of that. We're keenly aware of that as, as human beings. It's part of our human experience. We recognize that even when things are going great, one day they're not going to be, and I'm not trying to depress you. I'm not saying in the midst of your joy, be thinking of the, the bad things that are to come. That's not the point at all. And that's not the point Ecclesiastes is going to make. But the reality is there's a time coming. We need to be preparing for that time now. We need to be enjoying what we've been given now because there's a time coming when those things are going to change. The precious ointment will lose its fragrance all too soon. But think about death days. We think about them usually after they've happened. We don't think about it beforehand. And so we have this concept of memorials that remembers someone who has passed on. The memorial of a good name, a good name is permanent, like the day of death is permanent, if you've kept the good name. That's the point in Ecclesiastes. And so you think about the memorial for the Israelites as they're heading out of Egypt. They've been been remembered by their God just as was promised hundreds of years before, and there's something they need to do. We've got to go get Joseph's bones. (laughs) He said, promise me solemnly that you will take me up with you when you go. And so in Exodus 13 and verse 19, as they go up out of Egypt, they're carrying with them 
Joseph's bones. There's a memorial to this man who was faithful and got them into safety in Egypt. Now it's time to get out of there. But he had made them promise because he had hope that they were going to receive that land that God had promised to them. And now this deposit of his hope, his bones, is going out to be buried in that promised land together with his fathers. Just beautiful picture. And we just, in Luke 22, verse 19, we just experienced a memorial of our Lord's death, really, and proclaiming his death until he comes, according to 1 Corinthians 11. But Luke 22, 19, he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial feast. And we are meant to remember Jesus. But typically, these death days, memorials, are, are typified by the mourning of loved ones who've passed on. So you've got the house of mourning mentioned twice in Ecclesiastes 7 here. But think about Proverbs 10, 7. We already see a bit of a contrast. In Proverbs 10 and verse 7, the memory of the righteous, a good name, is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The name of the wicked will rot. We have memorials for good men, for good people. Remember people that we loved, people that had some influence in a good way on our lives. The evil, they have some kind of effect and influence for a short time, but their name rots, and they are forgotten typically. In the Old Testament, we have this concept of the death days as a, as a rest from hard labor. In Genesis 47, when, when Joseph brings his father up before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes out to meet Jacob, I love the way Jacob responds. It's sort of pessimistic sounding, but I think it's just realism. Jacob has had a very hard life. He's lost his son. He thought his son was dead. He's lost his beloved wife, and he's going up now into Egypt, and he meets the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh asks him about, him, about himself. And so uh, Pharaoh says to Jacob in Genesis 47, verse 8, how many, uh, uh, Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning, I love that, are 130 years. Few and evil have been the years of my life. 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. It's been a rough life, and I've only been given 130 years. He can remember fathers and grandfathers who lived 200 or 500 years. He's only lived 130. It's been a short hard life. But he's thinking about this rest as he's going to be with his fathers. And that's the language used a lot in Genesis. They're gathered to their fathers. He goes on to this resting place. In the New Testament, the concept is more of a rest from sin. I want to look at two texts quickly. Romans chapter 6, and we'll come back to the thoughts that are here. In Romans chapter 6, the concept is resting from sin and death. <laughs> So the question is raised by those who are challenging what Paul is saying about God's grace being overarching and reaching out even to the Gentiles. And they say, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus didn't stay dead, 
but he went into the rest of his father and he promises to bring us into the rest. If we'll die with him from this hard, laborious life that this world has, he can bring us into a new life. It's a life of rest. It doesn't mean physically we're going to be able to lay down yet, but it'll be a life of rest in terms of this battle against sin because we'll be with the one who can free us from that. In Revelation 14, I, I love this, uh, this aspect or this, this description of the relationship, really, I believe, that we have with the Lord already is what's going on here. But Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. This concept of an absolute rest from hard labor, a rest from sin. Sin is laborious and sin's what causes all of this suffering anyway. You think about this concept of a weekly memorial of Christ's death. 1 Corinthians 11, 26, we, we are declaring, we're announcing his death till he comes. Interestingly enough, there is not a joyous biblical memorial of his birth. We have the register of it, and it's a joyous occasion, but we're not given a memorial in the sense that we are a memorial of his death. What is, what is Jesus trying to get us to think about if we're thinking about his death till he comes and the fact that we've entered into death with him until he comes? There's a daily memorial, I want to suggest, of our death. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, what is Paul talking about? The language he uses here is death language. We don't typically think of it that way because it's the death of an animal that was being sacrificed. This is the whole burnt offering, the language he's using. It's the language of the daily sacrifices. Every morning and every evening, an animal in Israel would give its life, a young goat or a young lamb would give its life in these sacrifices, and Paul is now transferring that to us. We are the morning and the evening sacrifice. We're the daily sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a daily memorial of our death as we are laying ourselves on the altar as a, as a memorial sacrifice, if you will. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus told them to take up their cross daily. Taking up the cross is an act of dying to the world. <laughs> take up your cross daily and follow me. And it's really a testimony to the urgency of serving while we can. We're to remember, this is another day that I'm laying myself on the altar of God. This may be the last day I have. I need to use it for him. I'm sacrificing myself to him and his service this day. In John 9, verse 4, Jesus said, The night is coming in which no one can work. You must work the works of, of the Lord while it's the daytime. Let's, let's be busy. So the concept of this death day coming is not meant to depress us into doing nothing. It's meant to urge us and to spur us into action because we've got a limited amount of time and we don't know where that limit's going to be. And so we need to act now while we can. As we get into Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2 then, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. There's an overarching context in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says in chapter 1 and verse 14 that he's examining everything under the sun. This is during our physical lifetime. That's what Solomon is talking about. It's interesting to me how he spends so much time talking about the physical through this, and there's a lot that he's dealing with. At the very end, he comes to his conclusion that the physical is leading us toward the spiritual, and that's really what this is about. 
But it's not a condemnation of enjoying life. That's not what he's saying. He says, be careful about uh, uh, going to the house of feasting. He's not saying don't. He's saying it's better to consider what's going on in the house of mourning. He's not saying don't go to the house of feasting. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 to 26, he speaks of the great blessing that being able to feast with the Lord is. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 and following, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Give God the credit for the great blessings that we do have and enjoy those, but recognize those are temporary. They're meant to help you focus on what is not, the joy of our Lord. Enter into the joy of your master. That's something that's beyond this life. We may have foretastes of it, and we ought to take advantage of that. But the truth is, the sober-minded, the serious-minded, will live their lives with a view to the judgment that is coming. He says that all over through Ecclesiastes as well. Live your life to the full, experience what God's giving you, but remember, you're going to be called to account for it. Use it well. And so he finishes Ecclesiastes after all of these uh, exhortations about life under the sun with really his conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, the conclusion or the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In truth, during our lives, as we're enjoying the house of feasting, as we're in the house of, of, of mourning as well, there are reminders, constant reminders, to the reality of the world that we live in. I talk with my children about this a lot, but you think about even every night, the sun goes down. It gets dark. There are scary things. But then it comes back up. We have the hope of the morning, as we just sang about. The fall here, you have spectacular, beautiful fall, but it's really a harbinger of death, is it not? These beautiful autumn leaves that then crisp up and die, and then you have the bleak landscape for a few months of the blackness of the trees against the stark whiteness and cold of the snow. But then there's a resurrection as the daffodils and the daisies and everything starts coming up, and the beauty of God's resurrection. Isn't that teaching us about the reality of death, the resurrection? God, in parabolic form, teaching by parables, by the very nature of the world that he's made, has lessons for us. Do we see them? Are we paying attention? We fill our lives with entertainment, with distractions, with busyness, so that we don't have to see the reality that's around us. We try to shield ourselves from it by, by looking to everything else. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower, he says that the desire for riches and the cares of the world and these other things come in and they choke out the word so that it's unfruitful. And this is people that have received the word with joy, but it becomes unfruitful because they get distracted because they're not looking at the reality. And I think, boy, in this country especially, we don't look at reality. We got a lot of reality shows. They're fake. We know they're fake. But our lives are reality and we miss it because we're not willing to be serious and look at the reality. I'm not saying depressed. I'm saying serious. Be sober-minded and rejoice at what God has given us. But be looking to the temporal nature of everything that we have here so that we can be thinking about the eternal blessing that He wants to give. And so he says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. That is a strange concept for us. 
But it's really what Jason pointed out in Romans chapter 5. That's a text I would have used. I just didn't choose that one for here. But Romans 5, that there is patience that comes through the struggles of this life. We learn to be patient and hopeful because of the difficult things that we go through. And often we get to see on the other side how much God was with us, how he helped us through that. We didn't see it coming, and yet what a blessing it turned out to be. But the parallel to that text, I think, is James chapter 1, where he says the same thing. And then we'll look at a, a text in Romans uh, later that says very similar. Uh, it has a more glorious aspect on the end of it. But James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, look what he says. And again, how hard would this be? How hard would this be in the first century when they're facing the sword for their faith? And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, produces patience. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Wow. <laughs> let steadfastness have its full effect. I'm too impatient to let patience have its full work. I don't want to wait while patience is making me into something better. <laughs> I want it right now. <laughs> We're a consumer society. I've got to consume that now and see what it gives me. I don't have time because I'm too distracted to be noticing what God really wants me to learn from this lesson. I just want this to be over with. But that's not what James is saying. He's saying, let it work on you. Mourning has a deeper, more permanent work. The house of feasting is temporary. We leave and we're in a car wreck on the way home and all of a sudden the joy was gone. Mourning can work a deeper, more permanent work if we'll allow it to. The sadness and sorrow of mourning what he says here can build true happiness because we're no longer tied to what little things bring us short-term joy here, but we're looking and rejoicing at things that will bring lasting, peaceful joy with God. <laughs> That's where true happiness is. As they left the council rejoicing that they've been beaten for teaching the truth of Christ. How do you rejoice at something like that? Because they're not looking at the moment anymore. Their perspective has been changed by knowing Christ and seeing all men now differently because they see Him differently. And they're able to rejoice. And the language that Paul uses in these two texts we're going to look at is crushing in its joyousness in the midst of sadness. I, this is beautiful. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. We might ask, why then does God allow suffering? Well, I think we've seen a lot already in Ecclesiastes that talks about that. Why is He allowing us to go through difficult things? I want to say it's partly our fault, but really he takes the credit and the blame in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, let's begin at verse 18. Paul says this, and he's a man who suffered a lot. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That is God. He subjected his creation to futility. Who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Why are we struggling? God is showing you that as hard as it is here, it's so much better there. We appreciate the good when we've struggled through the bad. You know, there's, there's a strange dichotomy in that. God allowed the world to be subject to futility because if we enjoyed this world too much, we wouldn't be looking for a better one. Abraham was looking for a, a city whose founder was not man but God. And he had Ur of the Chaldees. He had some pretty nice places for the time that he could have just settled into, but he declared, no, there's something better. Better than Ur of the Chaldees? Better than this great Babylon that I've made with the might of my own hands, as Nebuchadnezzar would later say. Daniel was not a citizen of Babylon. He was looking for something greater, even though he was second in command by the time the Persians came along. Joseph was not looking to stay in Egypt. He said, take my bones with you when you go to what God has provided for us. And God doesn't want us getting too comfortable here. <laughs> he wants us to be longing for and looking for something there. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, again, the same concept that he's been talking about in Romans 8. Listen to the beauty of this language and remember how much this man suffered physically for his faith. We're not suffering like he did. But look what he said, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, go read 2 Corinthians 11 sometime and see if it's light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, we have the temporary versus the permanent. <laughs> and we look at this life as though it's so permanent, this, this flesh as though it's so permanent, and yet we see it disappearing all around us and we realize it's not permanent. How do I convince myself that I'm going to be okay? <laughs> I can't. I'm hoping for something that I can't see because what I see is not giving me hope. <laughs> but what I can't see and what I know to be true, that I can hold on to because I walk by faith and not by sight. And I look at this weight of glory that is so immense that no matter what I struggle here, it's not even worthy to be compared. That's what Paul's saying. This momentary light affliction. Because if it's 80 years of absolute terror, there's an eternity of glory with God. <laughs> and we can be thankful to God that it's not 80 years of absolute terror. There is much joy, much happiness. We get these foretastes of glory divine as we sang about through this life here. God is so good to us, even if we're suffering and struggling and pain, God is so good to us still. And he has something so much better planned. Paul was willing to be shipwrecked four times, at least that we know of, <laughs> to be beaten with rods, to stare down the sword, to be ready to die, if that's what Jesus had called him to do, and did it with joy, even as he suffered physically. That's what we've been called to. <laughs> but we shortchange ourselves of the blessing. We don't want to suffer. We don't get to grow because we don't allow ourselves to suffer long enough to grow from the suffering. I'm not saying seek it out. I'm not saying live a depressed life, but I'm saying when suffering happens, allow it to work its permanent work in you, the deeper work that it's meant for. When Paul called out to Jesus, to the Lord, remove this thorn, he called out three times, he pled with him. Jesus didn't remove the thorn. 
He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul learned a valuable lesson through that, a lesson we all need to learn. His grace is sufficient. No matter how bad the struggle is, he's extended his grace. That's sufficient. And it'll strengthen us so that we can accept what we're dealing with. If you have thorns or a thorn in your life, recognize that God's taking credit for that. (laughs) Paul said it was a messenger of Satan, but God allowed it there to buffet him so that he wouldn't be exalted above measure because of the visions that he had seen. God allowed that there. God allowed Satan to touch Job's life in very drastic ways. God allowed that. And so God took the credit and the blame because he was preparing something so much greater. And Job, in a physical sense, the end of Job's life is so much better than the beginning. The beginning was already amazing. But it's a lesson for us. Job's life becomes a parable. The end of our life, if we give it to Christ, is so much better than the beginning, even the best beginning we could have given it because that's temporary and tinged with brokenness. What's the reason God has allowed the thorn that's in your life? I don't know what it is. You may not figure it out, but understand there's a reason. And God's taking credit for that because He wants it to build something better in you. And if you handle it by His providence and with His grace, He will gladden you. That's what this text is saying. That sadness of your face is working a glad heart. Many of you know about the situation of our brother Matt Bassford. He has written many of the songs that we sing. They're very, very well written, very well done. And he is dealing with ALS. He's in the very, very end stages of it. He may not even still be alive as we're talking now. And he has met this impending doom with such grace from God. He watched his mother die several decades ago of ALS. He knew exactly what to expect. When his diagnosis came a couple of years ago, he began writing. He was already writing. He was writing songs and was writing articles. He began writing extensively, taking advantage of the time that he had left because he wasn't sure exactly how long he would have. If you have not read his articles, some of them I've been publishing in our newsletter, I urge you to find them. You will find no greater joy in service than through this man. It is so evident that the thorn that he's been given has worked such a weight of glory in him. And I'm not trying to exalt the man. I want to exalt the God who has made this man able to face this with such grace. I want to tell you what an impact his dying has had. His hospice nurse was baptized yesterday morning. (laughs) She's been serving him closely and seeing his joy at being able to share with her as much as he can, the gospel. About two months ago, he said, I can't move anymore. I can speak, and I'm thankful I still have a sound mind. And so he was writing speech to text and writing these articles. I can't move anymore. It's become too much of a burden. I'm not asking my family to bring me to worship anymore. He said, after today, it was so hard that they couldn't worship, I couldn't worship, and so I'm just staying home. It was heartbreaking for him that he couldn't make it out to worship services. And here's a man who was having to be carried everywhere. (laughs) He's been journaling all of this process and giving God the glory for this thorn that he is suffering because it has changed. His heavy heart has made his face glad and it's made his heart glad. And I'm thankful for the example he's been. My thorn is nowhere near what his thorn is. I dare say the thorns that we are are being buffeted with by Satan, are nowhere near what he's going through. And we can face them with the same joy. And we can help others to see God's grace in our lives. 
mourning ought to bring a more permanent work in our lives. There ought to be mourning in every disciple's life. We're in a broken world, and that should cause us to mourn. I'm not saying dwell on depression. I'm saying mourn over things that are really worth mourning over. Our own sin ought to bring us to mourn. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul expressed their need to mourn over their sin. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Mourning moves you to something. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, and also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. They repented and it became obvious. They were mourning over sin. In James chapter 4, it's interesting the, the language that James uses here. has been rough for some of these people and he says your perspective's all wrong. In James chapter 4 verses 7 and following. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's writing to Christians, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Sometimes in our joy and in our festing, we exalt ourselves. Oh, everything's going so great. Look at how good I've been doing. I'm going to build bigger barns and put more stuff in. I'll relax for a while and just have feasting. Perhaps. But he said to those brethren who were struggling, mourn and weep. Let your joy be turned to sorrow. It can build in you a deeper, full, permanent work. We ought to mourn over other sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they had the man living among them who was having a relationship with his father's wife, whether it was incestuous, whether this is a, not his own mother, Whatever it was, even the Gentiles would not be carried away with that kind of sin. That's how bad it was. And they were rejoicing at their being able to extend grace to this man. And Paul said, don't do that. Your glorying is not good. You ought to mourn and you ought to remove this man from your midst if he will not repent. In Isaiah 66, we're told of those who were mourning over Jerusalem because God's destruction was already decreed. We ought to mourn at the other's sins and that ought to motivate us then to, to teach them and to encourage them and exhort them out of their sinfulness. And we will mourn as disciples over persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. He didn't say it's going to be easy to be my disciple. You're going to mourn. He said in verses 10 through 12, you'll be persecuted. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. They're persecuting me. They'll persecute you. Mourn about that, but be motivated. As we saw in our, in our class this morning, those who were scattered over the persecution that arose over Stephen. They were mourning his death, and they went out and preached all the more. Everywhere they went, taking the word that Stephen was willing to give his life for, as they went out then giving their own lives in the service of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Jesus had told the apostles and the other disciples as they went out that it wasn't going to be easy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we should not expect it just to be easy. Verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. <laughs> you continue. Stand strong. Let patience have 
its perfect and more permanent work in you. We cannot allow mourning to drive us from God, but to God. Not from God's people, but to God's people. Even if we're mourning at something God's people have done to us, <laughs> they're lost. They're hurting as well. <laughs> and hurt people hurt people. We've heard that. We need to be helping each other. And they hurt me, I'm going to return grace. <laughs> we're going to help them as the Lord has helped us. We hurt him. We're the reason he went to the cross. So consider Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Someone who's overtaken in a trespass, let's go help them. The trespass may be against me, let's forgive them and go help them. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, as the body is rejoicing together and weeping together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when one suffers, we all suffer together. We're united in that, in the joy and in the suffering. And that's what makes the joy and the suffering bearable. It's what keeps the joy in perspective and makes the suffering bearable. Finally, verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We're looking at a contrast between the dwelling places of the heart. And Again, the point here is not to just dwell in depression. That's not the point at all. The wise heart will contemplate the end from the beginning. As we stand here today, we're thinking about this is all headed somewhere. We're all headed toward a destination. Where will that be? What choices will you make today that will help you get to that destination that you want or that will keep you from getting there? The foolish heart considers only the moment's pleasure. He's not looking ahead. He's looking down at his feet, looking at his own belly, as Paul will say. And he's going to walk right off the cliff because he's not going to see it coming. <laughs> the wise is outward looking. is contemplating, where is this taking me? Where am I going to end up with this? I know that death is coming. Where will I be then? How will I be then? That's what this means. It doesn't mean just sit and think about dying all the time. But what happens is that both of these can become a house for the heart or the mind, a dwelling place. Either you're going to be dwelling somewhere in the house of mourning, recognizing that there is an end to all that we see, or you're just going to be distracted by the house of mirth. What you think about is going to determine where you dwell. And so... The famous uh, text from Philippians chapter 4, uh, Paul hits it right on the head. This is, this is where our hearts and minds need to be. And it's interesting that these would be things that are part of this having your mind seriously fixed on the house of mourning, on the fact that there's a day coming. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but death is coming. Don't be anxious. Be hopeful. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who of us can imagine being on your deathbed, your hospice nurse hovering over you, and you are at peace so much that she sees it and says, I want that. <laughs> That's where our brother Matt is. That's where we need to be. Because the peace that comes from that hope that we talked about in the Lord's Supper is what ought to characterize who we are as we're looking toward this day of mourning. And so God's peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. 
what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, the apostle. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's a beautiful passage in Ecclesiastes 7. It's strange to our ears. Why would we consider sorrow better than joy? But I hope you see why. Sorrow is coming. Mourning is coming, whether we want it to come or not. Let's be realistic about that. Let's not be depressed about it. Let's be realistic about it. Some are already experiencing sorrow, sorrow of heart, sorrow of body, sorrow of of emotions. Some are experiencing mourning. What are we going to do as a family to help bring about the joy and the peace and the hope that is beyond that side of mourning? How are we going to help the rest of our family to grow? How are we going to grow? and let patience have its perfect work. Where does your heart dwell? It's so easy, that's what Satan wants, to be caught up in the joys of the moment and to think that life is just from one joy to the next. And that's what we're looking for. And we get frustrated when our one joyous moment gets cut off by something we weren't expecting, but hurry up and get through it so we can get to the next joyous moment. Take advantage of the distraction. (laughs) Take advantage of that, that God is allowed to become a thorn Because he's teaching you something. Learn it, what it is. And bring it to your brethren so we can learn together as we help you through it. The real thing we need to consider, Hebrews 9, 27, says we all have an appointment with death. But as we're looking at, as we talked about in our class this morning, bringing that back, we need to make a decision about this kingdom that's been brought near to us through the gospel. We need to make a decision about serving this king. And this king says... The only way you can serve me is you have to die to all the other kingdoms. <laughs> you got to come and live with me where I am after I've died and come back. I'll bring you with me, but you have to die with me. You've got to put to death those other things. But that's a house of mourning, yes. <laughs> and so I remember my anniversary of the day I died with Christ <laughs> coming up near the end of next month. And I rejoice that he brought me back to life in him. And I have not lived it perfectly. But I tell you, I have a lot of joy (laughs) together with the morning because I have a lot of hope, real hope. I'm hoping for things I haven't seen physically, but with my mind's eye, I've seen it. And I rejoice together with all those who are rejoicing in hope and want to help you to rejoice in hope. We would rejoice so much today if you'd be willing to die with Christ and start a new life with Him. We'd love to help you do that if you haven't done that yet. If you have, but mourning has brought sadness and not the joy and the hope that ought to be on the other side, we want to help you turn your sorrow to joy. James said, turn your joy to sorrow. And there's a specific purpose to that. But this world has brought enough sorrow. And if you're not serving Christ, you're never going to get out of that. But Christ can make your sorrow turn to joy if you're willing to die with him and face life with a new perspective. And that's what we're here about. That's what we want to help you with. I hope this lesson has been an encouragement. I don't mean it to be a downer. I mean it to be helping you to think seriously about life so that you can face life with joy, knowing that even all you've been through that's been rough has had a purpose. And if you'll have the right perspective, it can bring real joy, eternal joy, as you think about the blessing that God has given you and offering you the chance to die with His Son who died for you. If we can help you to make that a reality today, then allow us to do that. If later you want to talk about it, if you're hearing this lesson later and you want to get in touch with us so we can help you with this, that would be our joy We would rejoice together with the angels in heaven if you come to serve God. We can help you in whatever way. Please let us know. Come forward as we stand and sing this song to encourage your decisions.